A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Before my guest on today's show starred in the excellent new HBO series, Somebody Somewhere... She was probably best known for her show-stopping songs, like this one called, well, Titties. She said, Bridget, you're a woman now. You gotta stand tall and be proud of what your mama gave you. Do you hear me? You got them little nippy titties. Pulled them in the air, she got them too. Titties, she put them in the air. I got these beaver tail titties. I put them in the air. Put them up, put them up, put them up. You got them low riding titties. Put them in the air. You got them tic tac titties. Put them in the air. You got them ding dong titties. Put them in the air. Put them up, put them up, put them up. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the great Bridget Everett performing one of her most iconic songs from her 2015 Comedy Central special, Gynecological Wonder. After years and years in the cabaret scene in New York City, Bridget has now taken on a very different persona in Somebody Somewhere, her semi-autobiographical HBO show, that director Jay Duplass has described as a, quote, drama that happens to be funny. Somebody Somewhere can be very funny at times, and Bridget is very funny in it, but it is also a surprisingly quiet and tragic examination of grief and struggle to find your place in the world. I should also point out that Bridget and I talked before HBO renewed her show for a second season. As we discuss in today's episode, Somebody Somewhere is like an alternate history of how Bridget's life could have gone if she had never made her way to New York and became a star. And she is definitely a star. So strap in, here's me with the one and only Bridget Everett. Well, how's it going? (laughs) Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I, I'm really, really loving your show, uh, Somebody Somewhere. I'm lucky enough to have gotten to see the the whole thing and really, really enjoyed it. But we're talking now after just two episodes have aired, I believe. Um, so how's it going? How are you? What kind of feedback are you getting? How are you feeling about it? I feel really good. I feel, um, you know, I felt a little uncertain at first because it's a pretty, you know, it's a show that kind of wears its heart on its sleeve and that's not always considered, considered cool, you know? (laughs) Um, but, uh, the feedback has just been really positive. I think, um, sometimes people need, um, need something that hits them in the heart. You know, it's not a bad thing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for, uh, there is something sort of surprising about the show, you know, having followed your career, it's, it's more low key, a little more quiet than, than I think a lot of your fans may expect. So how does, how did you think about that as something that you, is that something that you wanted to do to kind of do something very different from what you're known for doing on stage? 
Yeah, I think so, because, you know, the, the live stage show, which is, you know, it's the juice that drives me, you know, it makes me very happy. It's like bridge it out on the edge. <laughs> but but I don't think, you know, to put that in a TV format is going to work. It just wouldn't sustain itself. So um, we thought a more interesting thing might be to think of like, okay, well, what if like Bridget Everett never moved to New York and she stayed in Kansas? Like what might that that look like? And so that's that's kind of the where where we started. And Paul and Hannah, our showrunners, pitched the idea of the world. And I had never thought about like doing a show back in Kansas. You know, I left for a reason. But um, but honestly, it's it's been really fun and sort of cathartic and like and and healing in a way to do a show um, back in Kansas, the Little Apple, as as it were. <laughs> yeah. Did you actually shoot in your hometown of Manhattan, Kansas? No, well, no. We shot in Illinois, sort of the greater, you know, um, Lockport and a bunch of these towns. But um, we did pick up a little footage in my hometown, which was super exciting. And my brother Brad was, like, running around getting his release forms. <laughs> and, you know, it was a real family operation. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that must be very surreal to go back to your uh, to your roots like that and and be doing this sort of fictional version of yourself, but in the place where you actually grew up. It is, you know, I I you know I've never performed like my live show in my hometown. I just sort of out of respect for my brother who still <laughs> lives there and my mom. You know, it's a conservative town. I think I think you know I I might consider it at this point, but so and. And my family has seen me perform live and they, they know. And I think like, even sometimes like my hometown is like, (laughs) you know, maybe a little concerned about what the show might look like, you know, but my brother was just at the city council meeting the other night and just being like, you know, I just want to put in a good word for my sister and uh, for the show (laughs) and what she's doing for our town. And, you know, and she, and she's not even naked in this one. So, you know, I think it's good. That's good. Yeah, I was wondering what your what your family thought about the show because it is it's very it's not um, you know outrageous like your stage show, but it's very personal in other ways and really you know deals with some some serious stuff as well. So what what has that been like you know for your family to to see that on screen? It's it's interesting. You know their their reaction is they're proud, but they're very measured and they're like you know. Um, you know, my brother last night texted. We have a, like a sibling chain, and he's like, "I like that scene in the garage. That was." Very, it was very believable. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> but, you know, and they look for like the little, uh, I always call them Easter bunnies, I guess, or like Easter eggs or something, you know, like the, the little, the little uh, nods of the hat to my family, you know, but I, I also want it to be clear to them, like, this is not like a hit piece on my family. It's more about the themes of my life. You know, I'm not, I'm not coming for them. They're, um, cause uh, they would, can I cuss? Yeah, of course. Oh, cause they would not fucking have it if I did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you said, you know, it's, it's interesting, the origins of this show, you know, cause I think people might think that it's something that you, it is so personal that it's something that really started with you, but it didn't actually start with you, right? It's something that, that came to you. Yeah. Well, I got a deal with HBO and then I called Carolyn Strauss, who's a legendary television producer, Game of Thrones and some others. Um, and she recommended that we reach out to Paul Threen and Hannah Boss, who are, uh, you know, created, you know, they came with a pitch. And by the end, I was really overcome. You know, they added in like this choir practice element and of course, like a sister that's died. And I don't know if they knew that my sister had died or not, but like I had, yeah, but it's interesting. You know, I have so many unresolved um feelings about that and and the way it connects to music and so I was like this sounds like a world we can work with so we got into a room and we just like really hammered it all out and and 
it's a large, you know, there's a lot, it's a lot about like, you know, obviously like finding your people and everything, but it's also about grief and um, re-engaging to the world. And for me, those are present in my real life. You know, I'm a, I'm a wildebeest on stage, but in real life, I'm an introvert who's sad a lot, <laughs> you know, this, which is, which is a very interesting, but it's true. I'm sorry. I, just, <laughs> I lost my sister six months ago, so I'm a little... I know. I'm so sorry about Holly. She was a few years ahead of us, right? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize that we went to high school together. We were in show choir together. No, I, I knew I recognized you. No, you didn't. I didn't. It's all good. A lot of people don't remember me. I found this old quote from you, which you said, the wilder and more outrageous my stage persona becomes, the more withdrawn and reserved I become in real life. And I found that really interesting that it kind of, that there's a um, connection there between sort of what you're able to put out on stage and what you, how you are in your real life. So can you talk about that a little bit more and, and, and also how it relates to this show where you have this character who is um, more reserved in a lot of ways and sort of figuring it out um, and, and figuring well, out how she wants to interact with the world. Yeah. I think that um, the, the stage, like when I was younger, I was kind of always getting in trouble for being a little too foul mouthed or a little too obnoxious or a little too wild. Um, and once you start you hear that enough times, you start to sort of tamp it down, <laughs> you know, maybe not with your, you know, your, your, your close friends, but, but, on stage, like I just, I, I just, you know, I was sort of waiting tables. I wasn't very, I wasn't, I wasn't very, I wasn't successful at all. And I just started going bigger and wilder. And it just felt, I felt more and more and more alive. But the more of me that did that, like the rest just felt like I just had to sort of pr- protect it, you know, protect like the, you know, because there's a lot, I share quite a bit on stage, both emotionally and physically. <laughs> You know, and I mean that from from the heart to the tits, you know, like it's it's all you sort of leave it all on the floor. And then so by then I just need to, like, go home and um, sit with myself. And I don't know. Also, I feel like music is like this and singing is a way for me to connect to dormant feelings. Right. And the more that like you're I'm sort of sharing this on stage, I just feel like uh depleted. <laughs> and then in terms of your character, Sam, on the show, you know, at least at the beginning of the series, she doesn't have that outlet to share herself. You know, we right. see that she's written, you know, her songs in a notebook, which I think some of which are your actual songs that yeah. you've written um, in your life. Um, but she doesn't have a, a stage, a, a platform. So was it, um, what was it like for you to kind of go back to that part of yourself before you had this outlet? Well, not that hard because there was a very long span of my life that that was the truth. You know, like um, the only real singing I was doing in my 20s and 30s was in karaoke bars. And then it was my late 30s, I kind of found cabaret and started getting a little more and more successful at it. But there were many years when I was here in New York and my friends were, you know, becoming successful on Broadway and TV and movies. And I was still a waitress, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's not your dream, it's going to leave you a little uh, empty feeling. (laughs) So um, I was that way, you know, I, without that release, I, I mean, I was like a karaoke queen once a week on Sunday night with my friends. And if we didn't get to do that, then I was just like angry. (laughs) And I was kind of a mean friend sometimes. And, and, you know, a little lost. So 
I think it's it's interesting to think about. I think I know a lot of people that are in their 30s and 40s and sort of not quite connecting to the thing that is that they really want to do or not finding a way to do it or not fully giving themselves a chance to do it. Um, and, you know, you certainly don't see a lot of women pushing 50 that are protagonists trying to, you know, just start their life at that age. I don't know. Maybe there are, I've, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you, you talked about the show as sort of an alternative version of how your life could have turned out, you know, if you had stayed um, in, in Kansas, hadn't come to New York. Um, is there a moment that you think about where the two stories diverge, where, you know, you either could have ended up like Sam or become Bridget? Well, I think if I, I got a scholarship to Arizona State and when I, you know, and I, my family was, they all had gone to KU or K-State and sort of like, oh, look at you, Arizona State, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> I just wanted to, to go and try something else. I knew I didn't belong in Kansas and because I never really felt, felt like I fit in there. And, and not that I fit in in Arizona, but it was just like a first step, you know, and, and it was, it, it was a change, you know, a course of events that got me to New York. But, but I think if I was still in New York or in, in Kansas, like, I just, you know, I probably, I mean, I, I, I just think I would be spinning. Like, it's just not because it's a bad place. It's a great place. You know, I love to visit, but, but it's not meant for me, you know? And so what happens when you're somewhere where you're not meant to be? Um, and she's, and Sam's not really working at trying to make it better either. She's sort of comfortable in her misery and comfortable in her isolation. And I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And I think we're sort of supposed to think or it is it, that she left and has now come back, right? I mean, that she she did try to to do something else and has now well, come she, back to, to home. She went as far as Lawrence, which is in you know, reality. <laughs> which is not is very like, far, yeah. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half away. Um, and then came home. But, you know, that is a world away sometimes. You know, there's Manhattan and Lawrence are very different places. Um, Lawrence is a lot, in in my estimation, it's more, um, you know, it's just different. It's a little more liberal and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you can, and you're also not in your hometown, so you can get a little lost. You'll probably still see some people, but you're not like, you know, every time you go to Dylan's, which is a grocery store, you run into somebody you either went to high school with or that taught you in high school or that suspended you in high school or something. <laughs> um, so you, so what was it like for you to, to leave home for the first time and, and be in Arizona? And what was that, you know, experience? What did you get out of that experience that then you carried into, you know, New York and everything that, that came after? Well, I was like a mom's girl. I'm the youngest of six. Like I really had barely been outside of Kansas um, I was like completely like sh- sheltered in some ways, you know? And so I went to like the number one party school in the country, or at least, you know, <laughs> at that time it was one of them. Um, it was, it was like a nonstop rock concert. It was just like, <laughs> I felt fully like I was so alive. I was, you know, studying opera at that point, which I loved, I loved to be getting to do music all the time. And even though ultimately it wasn't the right kind of music for me, it just felt like it was still joyful because it was still music and being around those kinds of people. Yeah, show, pe- um, show people, you know, show people are a little different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And is that, and then did you go straight from there to New York or what was that well, journey like? I, when I was there, they used to, um, 
they this resort that I worked for, Quisasana in Maine, would audition at music schools and conservatories around the country and and take some of you know those students and 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 like and give them a summer job in Maine, which is sort of like uh, it's called Quisasana, and it was like a little bit like a dirty dancing resort, you know, singing singing at night and you know waiting tables during the day. And I did that for seven summers. And over the course of those summers, I met all these people from. Carnegie Mellon and and Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and all these great schools and and I came back to after I graduated I still went there a couple times and was still living in Arizona just karaoke bars waiting tables at PF Chang's and and uh, waiting on like sports stars and but I eventually just went to Maine one summer I was like I'm not going back to Arizona and I just came to New York with a with 500 bucks in my pocket and rolled the dice and hoped for the best <laughs> <laughs> and how did and how did that go. Well, I mean, about fifteen or twenty years later, it's 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 going okay. <laughs> it's going well. Yeah. <laughs> but the first <laughs> took a while. The first uh, fifteen were a little choppy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what were the first? Were you auditioning for stuff in in New York, or what was what was sort of your your yeah. way into to show business besides yeah. karaoke? I auditioned for um, a children's theater company, and I got a part in a Hansel and Gretel bus and truck tour. I played the mom. And, uh, you know, there's six of us in a van, shoulder to shoulder, going to, you know, uh, all up and down the sort of eastern seaboard and and unloading the truck, doing the show, loading it back in, staying in shitty hotels. And I was like, I don't think this is actually what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew that, like, you know, I wasn't like a chorus girl or a Broadway star. I didn't have that kind of singing voice. And so I just was like, okay, I guess it's going to be karaoke and waiting tables and and uh, maybe I'll live fast, die hard. I don't know. I didn't really know. <laughs> what was the What was the transition from karaoke to cabaret? Because that must have been a big moment. My friend Zach took me to to a Kiki and Herb show, and then I also met Murray Hill, and I and he also took me to see Sweetie, who was who's now passed away, but was very influential to me. She's a, an incredible drag queen. Um, always made me cry and made me laugh harder than anyone. Just like fully. Fully, like you could feel every cell of her body when she was performing, um, and I just loved her so much. And and there was just like an immediacy, and like that I was seeing in the downtown performance world, like something I'd never seen before. You know, just that sort of anything could happen. It was all felt like just uh, everything was burning hot, fast, and and bright. And I just I was like, oh my god, this is it. This is like karaoke, except you don't have to do karaoke. It's like real. It's real excitement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Murray Hill's really having a moment. Uh, he's in your show and uh, in Amy Schumer's show that's coming out uh, yeah, in a couple months. Yeah, yeah, and he also has a, a part in Welcome to Flash, which is Paul Feig and Jenny Bix's new show, and and so he's he's doing great. And hopefully, we'll get a season two, and he'll have an even bigger moment. Um, but it's about time because you know Murray is uh, legendary in New York, f- number one. But also, you don't see really anybody like him on screen, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely and, not, yeah. And I think that part of what's been so moving about doing this show is just seeing all the people, the warm reaction and outpouring of love for him, you know, specifically. It's really it's really heartwarming. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hiller, who plays Joel, is another character who I feel like you just don't see that much on TV. Yeah. He's really, really funny, really great and unique. Um, was he someone who you knew before or was just, was he just someone who auditioned? Or I, I did know. I knew of him. Um, and so I was like, 
we should see Jeff. I think Jeff is like so underutilized in television and film. And I happen to know that he's very warm hearted as, it's just as funny and sweet, you know, like when you can have both of those and, and he has like, the something that I always respond to is like when you can feel somebody's tenderness, just like sort of like, whether they're being funny or just in their every, it just percolates, you know, I like an accessibility about somebody and he, and he has that. And I think that, you know, Jeff and Murray and me, we're not your typical television, you know, people you're going to see on television, at least together. You know, we might be like others enter or, um, you know, the friend or the, you know, the, the crazy person at the party, you know, so. And yeah, I think Jeff brings something so dynamic and just sweet that in the wrong hands could be treacly or or, you know, too precious, but, but it's just so genuine with him. He's just really incredible. Yeah. The chemistry between the two of you is just fantastic on screen. I think every time you're in scenes together, it's it's really great. Thank you. (laughs) One time I drove off the road during this crazy blizzard. You don't even want to know the things I had to do to get through. What did you, um, take yourself a little cup, fill up that cup Hmm. with some wee wee? I gotta drink my wee-wee. Oh, no. <laughs> Why would I have oh, to no. drink my own urine during a I gotta snowstorm? Drink, there was plenty drink, of water drink, to drink. Drink, drink, drink my wee-wee. Oh, no. <laughs> I gotta drink it. Drink it. Drink it. I drink it. My wee-wee. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about the experience of making this show after your experience on the, you know, Amazon pilot that that didn't get picked up, but that did kind of get out there and people got to see, which is a unique thing, which we don't always get to see these pilots that get made and don't get picked up. Um, but then, you know, sadly, you didn't get to make the rest of the show. Um, how did that experience inform what you wanted to do with this one? Well, I thought that you you wake up one day and you go in your mailbox and you you have a gold letter and it's from Hollywood and it says, <laughs> hi, here's your chance. <laughs> and so when we did the pilot Love You More, I did it with Michael Patrick King, who's a mentor of mine. And I and then it got all these great, you know, comments and you know, you have to vote on Amazon pilots at that time, and it was it was the most popular one or whatever. And, and then they just took it to a focus group and they're like, a couple guys were like, we don't think she's relatable. And I was like, Oh, okay. So it was, then it was just done all that. And that was it. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm not relatable. And so I guess there goes my shot and it's over. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, it was a weird time at Amazon too. I yeah. think there was some, some, some not great leadership happening there, um, which we I'm sure played, we might've played been a, a casualty of war, <laughs> but um, but you know, with this, I, I've had a, you know, some time between that pilot and this experience, um, to, to just know that like the more specific I am to me and the more true I can be to my story or my feelings or whatever. And I'm only, you know, speaking just for the, you know, also like my, my taste or the, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming up with the right word, but like my sensibility, um, so when we were doing this show, you know, Carolyn kept just being like our, you know, she's one of our executive producers, but to me, she's like the brains of the operation. You know, Paul and Hannah and I were all green and we're working with the Duplass brothers too, but Carolyn was in the room with us every day. And, you know, and she, and she has such an esteemed history in the television. Like yeah, when she was, she knows TV, <laughs> she knows TV. And when she was just like, 
more and more, know, you know, you are, Bridget, you, you are smart, you know, you are, trust yourself, you have great instincts, you, you know, this, that, and the other. And it was almost like, I just was like, I needed her to like, kind of carry me up the hill. And I think Paul and Hannah did too. We all sort of, she just kept like empowering us. And, and the more we, you know, just like, even just like the, 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 the dialogue and like little simple things, just the way I, I don't know, the way I look at the world, you know, she's always like more of that, more of that, more of that. And same with HBO, HBO with their notes, you know, they were more of that, more of that, more of that. And, and at the end I was like, fuck this, this is like kind of like a, a tender and a sweet show. Is this like going to not be cool? And is it going to just fade away? <laughs> like, you know, and, and sort of slip into the darkness, like love you more did. But I knew at least every background person or every, you know, every, every set thing, every, you know, really trying to just put my stamp on everything and having, and if it failed, it failed, but at least I gave it everything that I had. Coming up, Bridget talks about what it was like to get back on stage in front of real live people after a two-year COVID-induced hiatus. And later, I ask her about how she ended up in the middle of that epic feud between Jerry Seinfeld and Bobcat Goldthwait. Stick around. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to conversations with other HBO stars like Curb Your Enthusiasm's Susie Essman, The Righteous Gemstones' Eric Andre, Veep's Tony Hale, and everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Bridget Everett. You mentioned uh, Michael Patrick King uh, as a mentor. Um, was that? Did you work with him on that show? Was that after you did your appearance in the Sex and the City movie? That- well, the first thing I did, I went to this the Aspen Comedy Festival in two thousand six. It was like a big comedy festival that the HBO did, and it was a really big deal. It was kind of like my first thing, and I, I remember, like I performed in this big tent, and like he was there, and Norman Lear was there this one night, and like. And, you know, at these festivals, like, people come and go and they leave. And then I just, like, 
I, a bunch of people got up and left. I was like, oh my God. And, you know, I went backstage and I remember like I was crying to my friend, John, John. I was like, I, I, I blew my chance. Like I fucked up, you know? And Michael came backstage and he was like, that was incredible. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you only need, you know, one person. And I saw Norman Lear later um, in the festival and he said something really nice. And I was like, well, if Michael Patrick King and Norman Lear, are, you know, enjoyed yeah. it, maybe maybe <laughs> I should too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that started your sort of working relationship with Michael after yeah, that? Yeah, and so um, I had been working with Ars Nova, Jason Egan's our artistic director there, and John Steingart was running it at the time. And, and he contacted Michael and was like, there's this, you know, young lady you should see, which is me. And so from there I did this show called at least it's pink. And then Michael came and, and, um, it was an off off Broadway show. It was like after the comeback was, had happened for him and he was, he was looking for some, something else to do. And so we fit nicely into the crack of uh, his schedule where he didn't have something. And, and we just, you know, fell in love in like that sort of artistic way. And I learned so much from him and he had so much faith in us and it was really exciting. Yeah. So you, so you did play a drunk party girl in the sex in the city movie, which was, was that a big deal at the time to get that uh, opportunity? It was huge. Like he, he's like, <laughs> I, he's like, I wrote you a little part in the sex in the city movie, but don't get too excited. You have to audition and do not fuck up, you know, don't fuck up. So <laughs> yeah. I went into audition and, and, you know, for, and I remember I was coming home from waiting tables and I get this phone call and it's from Michael and he told me I got the part and I'm you know just coming home from waiting tables, you know, and getting a call from somebody being your first kind of thing. And it's Michael Patrick King in the Sex and the City movie. It was pretty cool. I remember I was on 80th and or 80th in uh, Amsterdam walking home. I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> I love your books. Your shit's brilliant. Um, Kathy, you seem drunk. A little bit. Never made it to bed last night, but I type like a motherfucker. Um, have you been watching the and just like that the the reboot? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, of course, everyone's watching. Everybody's watching. Everybody has an opinion. I love it. <laughs> I love to see. I think SJ and Cynthia and Kristen. You know, I I just like to see women getting on in life and seeing what they're doing and sort of thinking of those women and the world as it exists now is really, it tickles me. So <laughs> I like seeing it. And I still love the clothes. I love it all. I love the whole experience. Was it that same festival that you met Amy Schumer as well? No, I met her at the Just for Laughs festival. Oh, okay, probably different like a couple, festival. Yeah, in Montreal a couple years later. Um, but another, you know, another sort of person that's come into my life and, and offered a lot of uh, help. And, you know, she's been, she's lifted me up and, and given me a lot of opportunity. And she's also a great friend. And we both love Chardonnay. We love, you know, taking edibles. <laughs> we like laughing, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, I mean, I think for one of the first times that I saw you on TV was when you were on her, was you were on Inside Amy Schumer, um, you know, kind of closing out the the season. Um, yeah. How did that change things for you um, when you, when she put you on, on her show? Well, I mean, it's, it's changed everything because, you know, first of all, to, to do a, a television series of your own and just think about letting the final moment and giving that to somebody else, it's, it's really special. Give it up for the one, the only, Bridget Everett! Hit the track! This song goes out to anybody with a pussy. And I'm not talking about a vagina, I'm talking about a pussy! There he was, just standing on the street with them lazy blue eyes. Cause you're looking back 
gotten a lot of work from that, honestly, like from doing that show and from, and one of the most important things that happened was, um, I, I was doing the song, what I got to do to get that dick in my mouth. <laughs> I was like closing <laughs> out the season and, uh, you know, not long after that, I got a call from my agent who said, you know, there's this guy, Jeremy Jasper, he wants you to come to, um, to the Sundance labs. He's workshopping, um, this movie patty cakes. And I was like, well, you tell him I'm not interested. I'm not an actress that way. Like, I can't, like, this is, it was like a dramatic turn. And, and, you know, he really, he's like, let me just, he's like, can I just talk to her? And so I had lunch with him and he talked me into it, basically. And, you know, Patty Case was like this Sundance, like, treasure. And, and I... And all, it was all because he saw me what I got seeing and what I got to do to get that dick in my mouth on Amy Schumer and being like, that's the mother in my movie. I'm like, okay. What do you think it was about that performance that made <laughs> know, him think you exactly. could do that role, right? I think it's probably because I was, you know, just brash and the mother in Patty Cakes is brash. And, 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 you know, and also he's, he saw, thought the same thing about uh, Danielle who played Patty, uh, Patty Cakes. Um, she never rapped or whatever. He saw her and he just had a, an instinct. So, we took a lot of time there. We really, um, there were mentors there, like Christine Lottie was there and she was, you know, just like there's all these people that come to Sundance, Sundance that sort of helped us. And and anyway, by doing that movie, I got a little faith in myself that maybe I could do dram- acting and maybe I could try dramatic stuff. And I got, you know, parts from that and opportunities from that. And, and it's sort of, laid the foundation for me to be able to do uh, somebody somewhere. Well, Patricia, not if you mob, um, I gotta grease these pipes. You know, your old lady was a real piece of A back in the day. I still got it. One more. Seriously? Don't you want your ma to have a nice time tonight? I know that you, you know, you weren't able to perform live for quite a while uh, during the pandemic, and then you did kind of get a window to to do some live performance not too long ago. What was that like uh, performing for the first time in probably longer than you, the longest break you'd taken in a in a very long time? Um, it felt like you know being in a electric car, being drained down to zero, and then going to get a supercharge, and all of a sudden you're just like buzzing. <laughs> you know, I, I. The, the pandemic, of course, was very hard for everybody, you know, no, no exemptions and exceptions. And, but, you know, for live performers and, and especially for people like me who, um, that's kind of your life force or your, you know, some people have family or, or, or food or whatever the thing is that makes them happy, that makes them tick. And to not have that and to not know if, when or if it will ever come back, you know, is, was very challenging and I'm not going to lie. I became really, really depressed about it. And then coming, coming back to it, I was like, you know, cause I worked so hard to develop that persona and that, and even though it's me, you know, it takes a lot of guts. I, which I took for granted two years ago when I was still doing it, it takes a lot of guts to be able to perform in that way and to sort of be that, present, that wild, and that connected to yourself and to the people that sit in, sitting in front of you. Um, and I was really scared the first five minutes. I thought I'd lost it, and which was making me 
sort of backslide in the moment for the first five minutes of the show. And, and then I sang titties, which is a real, you know, crowd pleaser, snapped me right back into place. <laughs> and I was like, here she goes. We're, we're here. Let's ride. Let's roll. And it was, it was incredible. And it was also before Omicron had hit New York. So it was kind of that last moment of, uh, getting to be around people before we all got shut down again. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you got that in there. Um, yeah, me too. you know, I think it's interesting. I was thinking about the, you know, the, your performance is so up close and personal with people, which is scary in this, you know, in a COVID sense and people maybe, I, w- I was wondering if you, did you notice a difference in how you were received or what did people kind of let go? I noticed a difference for me. Like I was like scared to be near anybody for a number of reasons. Um, but the people in the audience were just like, fucking bring it on. Like everybody was so in need of connection, you know, and in need of like, uh, the thrill of it. I took out a lot of the audience participation. I was wearing like a mask at certain points and doing whatever I could to make it feel palatable and trying to make a joke out of it sometimes. But um, yeah, I scaled it back probably 70% and, and just for everybody's sanity. But it was, I've, I've never felt an audience as, as I did in that week kind of just as like they needed it as much as I did, which was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also wondered if there had been any, you know, evolution over the time that you've been doing that stage show in terms of people's um, feelings around things like consent and, you know, being, you know, touched and those kinds of things. Cause that, cause I think attitudes have changed yeah, about that over the abs- years. Absolutely. So I just, uh, I've changed the language in the show. I've changed, you know, I don't go near people as much unless I've, I, you know, unless I say, may I say, may I, you know, stuff like that. It's, you know, so it's, we're all learning as we go. You know, I think it can't be as haphazard as it used to be and it shouldn't be, you know, let's, let's ride with the times and learn and grow and, and make sure everybody's comfortable and happy. Yeah. I think hopefully by now, most people know what they're getting into when they, when they go see you live. Yeah. Which is why I'm most comfortable performing at Joe's pub right now. I think that audience knows I feel comfortable there. They feel comfortable there. And I recognize a lot of the faces in the front, you know, they're, they're there for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, I just had, um, Bobcat Goldthwait on the show uh, uh-huh. a few weeks ago, um, who I know he, he talked about being a, a friend of yours. And we talked a lot about his, uh, his Seinfeld feud and specifically around <laughs> your, your appearance on Comedians in Cars getting coffee, which was pretty wild. Um, and he kind of told the story from his perspective about how you called him afterwards to, uh, to you know, basically be like, I had no idea that was going to happen or that that was going to be in the, get, make it in the episode. I had kind of forgotten about him. Mm-hmm. And then there was a little article about him in the paper. And even in that, there was a veiled reference to his dislike of what I did. Really? It didn't have my name, of course. He used to rail against comedians because they weren't as wild and dangerous as he was. Because he sucked. (laughs) Okay? He wasn't funny. Yeah. And that's why he didn't get anywhere. Yeah. Period. This feels, I feel very tense right now. Because in comedy, yeah. nobody gives a f- yeah. if you're cool, if you're lame, yeah. if you're funny, you win. Yeah. If you're not funny, you yeah. don't. And yeah. he's not funny. That's why you had to do that stupid f- voice. Because you have no f- act. I feel very stressed. Yeah. You could tell him, by the way, all of that. And that's why he didn't like me. 
because I could actually do it. I well, can do it. I can do comedy. Yeah, but you can. He can't. So I'd love to just hear that story from from your perspective about what what happened when Jerry Seinfeld brought up uh, Bobcat Goldthwait during your your episode. Well, I I didn't know it was going to come up, and it did. And I have a lot of respect for both Jerry and Bobcat, and I don't want to be in the middle of it. Yeah, you know, I, I love he kind of he kind of puts you in the middle though in that scene. I know, but you know, I I think that they can they can work it out. I I love both of them. I think they're both incredibly talented. They've both been. Uh, a good friend to me and, and, uh, you don't you want know, to be in the middle peace, peace and blessings and love across the board. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned that the, you're not sure yet, or you're waiting to hear about season two of this show. Um, what do you, you know, without knowing whether it's definitely going to happen, you must have ideas or, or hopes or dreams about what, what you want it to be. What do you, how do you think about, um, where this character in this show could go in season two? Well, because we don't have a season two, like nothing's official, but I, you know, just thinking about how the relationships might evolve and what might be interesting to take place in a, you know, with the characters that we have. Um, I don't want to say too much because I'm just not sure. Um, but it's been fun to like get in a room and we've been talking about it. We've been, you know, what could it be? Because if we get a season two, we want to like jump in and be fast on our feet and ready to go. <laughs> you know, we want to, we want to, but we also want to make sure that, um, you know, because we had so much time on these scripts and and this because of COVID and just to sort of go back over and think about it. And, you know, so if things happen, things will probably happen a lot faster this time. So we'll see what, how that goes. But I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what I want to do now before we end is our, our final segment called The First Laugh. Um, and I'm going to ask you about a few different firsts from your life and career uh, related to comedy. Um, so starting with, uh, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard or one of the first uh, growing up when you were a kid, something that, that really made you laugh? Um, oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, other than like I, old I Love Lucy episodes and yeah. the Carol Burnett well, show, <laughs> you know, the Carol Burnett show and I Love Lucy shows, I just used to watch on a loop that and Young and the Restless. Um, yeah. So <laughs> those are my, uh, but other than that, it's just like anything that my, you know, my mom like farting and stuff is just, you know, <laughs> very base level humor over here. <laughs> What do you remember about your very first time uh, performing on stage uh, at a at a show? Um, you know, at sort of a whether it was you know a, a comedy night or a cabaret night or or something that you very early on uh, performing and and what what did it feel like? Well, it just felt like you know after seeing Kiki and Herb and Murray and Sweetie that there were no rules and just like that that feeling of like the the further you go. And the closer to the edge you live, the more exciting it's going to feel. And I just mean that not like in like, you know, being vulgar or nudity or whatever, just like, just, I, I grew up feeling, you know, like where you should be, you know, like there's a lot of rules about how you should act in society and whatever. And then being here and doing some of those early shows, especially in downtown New York, there just were no rules. And it's like, just wildly exciting. Yeah. What was the first time that you appeared on a TV performing? Was it that Amy Schumer uh, yeah, show I, or what was? I think so. I mean, I would say that like, that's definitely like the first big appearance of just absolutely terrified in the back, you know, green room. Amy always supplied 
top dollar Chardonnay. So I'd be drinking a bottle of Ron Bauer, <laughs> yeah. Ron Bauer Chardonnay and, you know, go out there with, uh, I think, was it Elaine Stritch that said, well, I'm not going out there alone. <laughs> so I have a couple, <laughs> couple drinks and just hope for the best. <laughs> Um, and what was the, what was the reaction that you, you got after you, you did that? I mean, from, from people who, who saw it, a uh, big risk, big reward, you know, good stuff, really good stuff. <laughs> really. Uh, uh, I mean, I remember when I first like went on tour with Amy, I was like, I don't know, this is like, I don't know if this is going to work in like a comedy club setting. She's like, why don't you, she's like, why don't you trust me? I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. And she was right. <laughs> Do you have a story about the first time meeting uh, uh, either a comedy hero or a performing hero or a, a you know theater hero, someone who you um, really really look up looked up to, um, and what it was like meeting them for the first time? Well, I was doing a show uh, called Jukebox Jackie at La Mama, and um, Scott Whitman had written and directed it, and he's friends with a bunch of showbiz legends. One of them being Patty Lapone, and. She came to see our show. I was like, just don't, just don't tell me when she's coming. You know, I just, I don't want to know. <laughs> but the thing is about Patty Lapone is you can hear her in the audience and you know she's there. And <laughs> she, and she came backstage and I just remember her just saying, you, you are something special. Like, just like, just, <laughs> wow. just the way that like the, you know, not all famous people, showbiz legends are going to give it up for you. And like, she really gives it up for people and she means it and you, and you have no choice but to believe it. <laughs> and did I hear that you're collaborating with her on something? Yeah. I mean, right now it's still in the infant stages, but there's a show be, you know, two-hander Broadway style uh, that my friend Jason Egan, who <laughs> And and Teddy, who uh, Teddy Bergman, who Jason is, who I got my I did my first show with Michael Patrick King at Ars Nova, and and he's he had this idea. He and Teddy, his producing partner, about this thing called Knockouts, and it would be me and Patty uh, together, um, you know, doing a show. And we've it's a uh, I mean, come on, we're both born on <laughs> April twenty first. We she's she she's to me she's the doesn't get much better than Patti LuPone. She is the ultimate Broadway legend. So I don't know what I'm going to be doing there, but <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a pretty uh, special show. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I think, you know, pa for, first of all, Patty's like the shit. She's like a total broad. She's always fucking funny. She has great stories. There's no pretense about her. Um, and, uh, I think she's fantastic. So it's, it would be an honor and a thrill. I hope it comes to fruition. <laughs> yeah. Um, and finally, um, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out something that's making them laugh right now. Um, what's the, what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard, whether it was a TV show or a movie or a live performance or, or anything that you've seen that, that you want to shout out that made you laugh? Um, you know, I was just on, uh, the other day I was on Cola Scola's website. Uh, I think Cole is so funny, the, so funny. <laughs> and just one of the most unique minds uh, in comedy. And I, I was just tooling through some old videos and cackling so much, such range and so demented and just perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a good recommendation. Yeah. Um, well, Bridget, thank you so much for, for doing this and talking with me today. Um, I really, really enjoy your show and enjoy you, you. And, uh, and this was, this was a lot of fun. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, stay strong out there. Live the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, thank you again to Bridget Everett for being my guest on this week's show. 
Somebody Somewhere is currently airing Sunday nights at 10.30 p.m. on HBO, and you can catch up on all of the episodes you may have missed on HBO Max. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.